The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Dave Byrne. Dave lived near West Point for several years as a young boy and later grew up in Red Hook, New York, a small town two hours north of New York City. He was inspired by West Point early in his life, and his connection with the land there brought him back later in life. Dave distinguished himself in the application process by networking and cultivating relationships within his community. Starting from the bottom and earning his application through hard work and persistence. Dave replicated this model at West Point and throughout military service, engaging people, identifying tasks, and accomplishing difficult things with individual work and network support. Dave left the military at the end of his initial service obligation and returned to upstate New York. Dave started at the bottom in real estate investment and solar construction and leveraged his skills and network to build success, becoming LG's senior manager for solar sales. In 2018, Dave left LG and started his own solar energy consulting and electrical vehicle charging station installation company, starting at the bottom, building and engaging his network, and doing hard things. This is his story. Through the Gray has a new sponsor, Alpha Coffee. Alpha Coffee is a veteran and military spouse co-owned and operated company dedicated to offering their customers amazing coffee, promoting the warrior lifestyle, and providing the highest levels of service and giving back to our military and veterans. I've been drinking their Warrior Select and Double Barrel Black Brews for the past two weeks, and there is nothing more comforting on a cold gray day in the Pacific Northwest or at West Point than a smooth cup of dark coffee. Please support this company, and when you purchase either on Amazon or on their website, alpha.coffee.com, use our promo code through the gray. Thank you. Welcome to Through the Gray. We're speaking with Dave Byrne. How are you doing today, Dave? Great. Thank you. So, first question, why West Point? Yeah, so first of all, Joe, I, I just wanted to thank you for your efforts and, and what you're doing with these interviews. Um, it, it's been really meaningful, I think, for a lot of us. Uh, it's been gratifying to hear all these different stories. So I, I wanted to acknowledge you and your efforts. Um, it's really heroic uh, in terms of the time and, and energy you're, you're committing. Um, and to answer your question, uh, I was born in New York City. And uh, as a child, I actually uh, lived right next to West Point in what, um, Highland Falls. And my family was not a military family. My, my parents were immigrants uh, from Europe. So they, they landed in, in Highland Falls. And um, I had a great childhood there. Um, you know, we, we didn't have much money. Uh, I remember going down to uh, the Grand Union, uh, which we would walk to because when my dad was out, we, we only had one car in the family, so he would take the car and we would have to walk. And, and I remember, um, you know, going to Grand Union and a lot of times I'd, I'd hide when my mom was cashing out because she didn't have enough money to pay for the groceries and we'd, we'd go hide somewhere because it was really embarrassing. Um, but to, to focus on why West Point, 
um, you know, we, we also used to walk down to West Point a lot, and um, my parents had a great appreciation for this country, uh, and I was first generation born here, and we would go and, and, you know, walk the property there and go to Trophy Point and enjoy some of the um, performances there, especially on, on July 4th. And I think, you know, although I was only, um, you know, five, six, seven years old at the time, uh, it, it made an impression on me. And maybe it was just subconsciously, but then fast forward to, to high school, uh, I was playing high school football. And, um, you know, this is before smartphones where you'd get, you know, automatic updates instantaneously on, on games and, and statuses of weather and that sort of thing. So our game was canceled on, on this one uh, day, and we went down to watch O'Neill High School play. O'Neill High School is right there in Highland Falls. And uh, we got down there only to realize that that game had been canceled. We'd gone down there to scout them out. And I, I talked to a couple of my buddies, and I said, let's go check out West Point. And it was, it was raining cats and dogs, and uh, we went right in there, um, you know, from Highland Falls into the Buffalo Field area, Buffalo Soldier Field. And um, there was West Point cadets playing uh, rugby at that time, and there was rain accumulated uh, to the tune of maybe three, four inches on the field, but they were just going at it. And uh, at that point, I, I just had an epiphany, and I was like, man, the, these guys are, uh, are going after it. Uh, it seems like they're they're pretty passionate, and uh, I want to be a part of, of this place. And um, so I think it was those two things. It was growing up in the area and having, you know, such fond memories, uh, you know, riding my bike around with my friend down to the Ben Franklin, downtown Highland Falls, and, you know, buying baseball cards and water balloons and just throwing them at random cars. But, you know, that's a whole other story. But just having a real American idyllic childhood, although we didn't have much, we were very happy and and then also that coupled with my experience later in life when I was you know down there watching the cadets um, go after it and and it it just was an epiphany and I made that decision right then I was like I'm I'm gonna go here uh, and you know it, it was really the the only place that I applied to and um, you know my parents were not politically connected um, and and I really had to start at the bottom and, and work my way through this long arduous. Um, application process. And I just wanted to share that I, you know, I, I knew that I had to get this nomination uh, from our local congressman, who at the time was uh, Congressman Solomon. And when I started this via the early action plan, uh, the congressman's committee told us, my parents and I, that uh, they had already selected their, their number one nominee. And apparently Congressman Solomon was, was very thorough in this nomination process. So he would typically nominate uh, 10 or so um, to West Point, and, and the number one nominee always apparently got accepted by the, the West Point admissions team as well. And so I started that process kind of at the bottom, you know, being told already that they had selected a, a number one nominee. Um, but I, I did know that there were a lot of uh, committee members on this particular Congressman Solomon's uh, nomination committee. So about 20 members uh, served, and I decided to go around uh, and meet each one of those members individually uh, prior to having to appear in front of the entire committee at once. And, you know, I have fond memories of driving around with my mom and, you know, trying to figure out what I should say to the this, you know, pretty uh, successful, you know, middle-aged um, committee member uh, as a high school kid. 
to try to convince them to, to give me their support versus uh, this other um, nominee whom they had already selected as their number one. So anyway, long story short, the hard work paid off. I, I started at the bottom and I ended up getting that number one slot and, and got in. The process of like building that resume, did that impact some of your choices for sports, activities after school, um, academics uh, and classes to try to push that those numbers up to push from 10 to 1? Definitely. Um, I, I appreciated that West Point was not just looking for geniuses, but people who could be all around good citizens. And um, I, you know, I was active in sports, um, but I also did community service and tried to, you know, serve in a leadership role in my school. Um, and and so I, I'd go on service projects sometimes. I, I remember one time I went to Haiti on a service project uh, to try to build a, a medical facility. And, um, you know, I, I think it was things like that, trying to um, exert that extra effort to to make a difference, but also to become a well-rounded person, more or less, <laughs> uh, helped me out in the end. Talk me through uh, the day that you found out that you were, you were nominated uh, and accepted to West Point. Yeah, I'll, I'll actually never forget it because my, um, my dad uh, brought me out for dinner. And uh, for us, that was a pretty novel thing to do. Like I said, I, my, my parents didn't have a lot in terms of material wealth. In fact, uh, the year before I went to West Point, I, I know they made you know, gross income about uh, 26K, which if you adjust for inflation today is uh, about $4,000 a month. And, um, you know, at that time, some colleges were charging upwards of, of $50,000 a year. But anyway, uh, it was a significant event uh, for me because we didn't go out to eat much. And my dad brought me out uh, to this place called Foster's Coach House in Rhinebeck, New York, uh, near where uh, we lived. And um, I, I could tell that he was he was definitely proud of, you know, the efforts that I had put into the process. He, he was probably more proud of, of the process than, you know, the outcome. But he was from Ireland and his family in Ireland that, you know, they all knew about West Point. So it, I guess, you know, people uh, were pretty happy for us. Walking into West Point, um, being so close, what was it like to walk into West Point that first day? Um, yeah, so I grew up, I, I, I moved actually from Highland Falls when I was eight years old. And we moved to a place called Red Hook, New York, which is about an hour and a half north of West Point small agrarian community. Um, and, but I was still, you know, much, much closer than, uh, I guess a lot of our classmates. I, I remember, you know, meeting a lot of, uh, our new classmates and, and a ton of them from Texas and, and all over the country. And I, I felt pretty grateful actually, because, you know, when we were allowed to leave, I, I could come home and kind of, you know, reconnect with a lot of my high school buddies as well. And, um, so it, it was, I would say, you know, in many ways, I, I did have it easier, you know, than than a lot of our classmates who are coming from across the country. Beast Barracks and and the shock of transitioning from being a civilian um, to that initial new cadet and cadet training. What was that like for you? Uh, it was just really a, a, a shift in, I guess, my whole operating system. Um, in high school, I was I was a people person. I, I, I had friends from all, all different uh clicks in, in my school and I, I could kind of transcend, um, you know, any of those, those social walls. But um, at West Point, I, I quickly uh, came to realize that I had to shift from being a, a people-oriented person to a task, 
a heavy focus on task orientation. And, uh, you know, it, when you're a people person and you like connecting with people and building networks, um, you know, it, it makes you take a step back when someone's in your face screaming at you and, you know, over something that's probably relatively minor um, in, in terms of the scope of an infraction. But you just have to take it. And I, I learned to, you know, not, not, let, not take things so personally uh, when, I, when I was getting um, chewed out for, for minor, minor things. And um, so that was a good lesson. You know, you have to learn to let things just roll off your back and, and uh, keep moving forward. The end of the summer and um, the military portion of training for that, that indoctrination and transition to the academic year. What was that like for you to go into the academic year? Yeah, I, I really um, enjoyed the, the field training. You know, I, I grew up uh, just an all-American kid playing with G.I. Joes, and, and I, I, I really enjoyed that. I, I liked being outdoors. I liked being in the woods. I, I loved the kind of the, the tactical dimension to what we were learning. And, um, and then, you know, transitioning... Uh, especially during reorganizational week, as everyone knows, I mean that that was a that was quite an experience. Um, you know, just getting a few hours of sleep a night. I I, I think everyone probably thinks this, but you know, I, I felt like that that week was very challenging, and and you know, some of our upperclassmen uh, were were particularly um, uh, intense. And uh, but you know, it, it was all kind of a blur and and. Uh, you know, again, I just learned to, to let things roll off your back and, and just know that in the end, it's, it's all going to be all right. As you were faced with these new problems and these new frictions, um, the transition from being uh, really relationship oriented to task oriented, how did you deal with that transition and how did you stay motivated? Yeah, it, it, was, it was interesting because, um, you know, I, I had to learn to just complete things in a timely manner and um and move on to the next thing and have a whole you know to-do list and, and just check all these items off as i went um i remember rooming with matt cole and and um you know he was an army football player and he went to the, the prep school and he was always so squared away despite having to wake up at you know ungodly hours to go work out and really sacrificing his body for for the overall team and um you know, that being said, he would still find time to always have his shoes polished, shining brightly. And, and um, we were, another roommate was Clayton Ams, Amsler uh, from Pennsylvania. And he also had great attention to detail. And I, I was always just, I always felt like I was trying to catch up and, and just get everything squared away. Uh, but we worked well as a team. And I, and I appreciate, um, you know, both of those roommates and, and how they, they helped me along. And uh, it, it was a... Uh, it was exciting times in fourth reg, um, you know, because the, the upperclassmen um, on one side of the spectrum were, were very intense. And then there was a whole nother side in, in fourth reg also that was like fun loving and, and, uh, and free spirited. So, I mean, I remember one night um, getting woken up as a plebe. Uh, it wasn't too far, um, too long after, uh, I think reorganizational week at some point but a couple months later and um some upperclassmen burst in my room and said hey burn wake up and you know i'm i'm rubbing the sleep out of my eyes and they say hey wear wear this and they throw me a leather jacket and i i got like my my issued sweats on and white t-shirt they said throw some shoes on we're, we're going to new york city and i'm 
you know, I'm a plebe and, you know, just used to trying to do my job. And I got all these firsties in my room and they want me to be their designated driver while we're going. They want to go party in New York City. So we're, <laughs> next thing I know, we're walking across the plane and, you know, I'm driving down the Henry Hudson Parkway with, I don't know, it must have been five or six firsties in the car. And, um, you know, they, they were they were having fun. I think one of them was trying to urinate while we're driving down the highway going 60 miles an hour. But um, anyway, you know, it was just memories like that where, you know, a random Saturday night, you'd, you'd hear some music and um, you're a plebe and you're, you're pinging down the hallways there. And, and Scott Barracks, you know, it was just a they had about four four rooms per level, and you're just trying to go about your business, and they start yelling at you while you're walking by, Burn, come in here, we're having a party, and poke your head in, and you, you see these these guys just dancing on furniture, you know, blasting music. So that was fourth reg, man. It was definitely uh, work hard, play hard. <laughs> it's it's crazy um, the kind of swings you see at West Point, where you, you have the, the discipline, you have the, the, the requirement to manage your time. Um, but you have to let that that control because you can't keep it bottled up for four years and you have to find outlets, some of them positive, some of them negative to kind of release some of that tension. Exactly. Yeah. When did you like really get your sea legs and start finding success? Um, I would say it was probably towards the end of uh, yuck year, but really gaining momentum in, into the start of um, my junior and then senior years. Um, so as a cow, I, I think I, I finally, you know, made Dean's List and got a, you know, a wreath or whatever and w- was finally doing better. Um, I, I did play um, sprint football for a couple of years. And then um, after I stopped doing that, I, I had a little more time to focus on uh, some of my other responsibilities and duties there. But um, it, it was interesting also playing, um, you know, sprint football. I, obviously, I wasn't uh, good enough or, or big or strong enough to play on, on the big boys team. But, um, you know, it was still uh, an outlet for, you know, getting away from it all and, and, you know, doing something you love. But, you know, frankly speaking, it wasn't always a great experience on that team. I, I really loved our classmates. And, you know, I still think of Joe Lusk um, all the time, a uh, great guy. Um, but some of the upperclassmen, again, were, were just a little too intense. They They would put like you know, these, these tinted contact lenses in that made their eyes like bright red. And, uh, they were just always like kind of bullying us underclassmen too. And, and, you know, you think, oh, you're, you're playing a, a team sport and you can, you know, sit with your team and, and get away from some of the, you know, the super strict upperclassmen in, in your, your home unit. And then, you know, the, the, some of these upperclassmen on the sprint football team were, were more intense than, than, you know, back at the unit. So anyway, it was an interesting experience. Uh, but to answer your question, when I, when I moved on from that, um, I, I felt like I could manage my time a, a little better. When did you start thinking about, um, branch and, and what it would be like to be an officer? When did that really strike home? Um, I, I really enjoyed, um, the field training we did and, and then, you know, in, in Beast and then at Buckner and, and, you know, also leading, you know, a squad, uh, through Buckner training. Um, and I, I always just felt drawn to the infantry. I, I wanted to be an army ranger. Um, I just felt like that, that was my calling, but unfortunately I had a, um, a back injury at school. And, uh, because of that, um, the, 
the medical powers to be said, well, uh, you can either get out of the army or get out before you serve your time, or you can serve, but in, you know, non-combat arms capacity. And, and so at that point, I, I kind of felt like my hand was being forced and, and I looked at the options and I, I understood that, that going military intelligence might allow me to be an infantry unit, even though I, you know, I couldn't branch infantry. Um, so that, that's the way I went. And, um, you know, it, it doesn't always work out, Joe, like we think it will. <laughs> uh, God always has a plan. Um, and sometimes, you know, you just, you just find your way. And um, it ended up working out. So talk me through that. Um, you, you pick military intelligence um, and you're preparing to go to the officer basic course. Talk me through uh, graduation day and then moving forward to the officer basic course. Sure. Yeah, I, I know graduation day was uh, especially monumental for, for you as well. Uh, I, I got married on graduation day. So as you know, we got, we got rained on multiple times that day. Um, the sun came out, we, we graduated, ran back to the barracks, <laughs> grabbed my bags, you know, ran back up the hill to the chapel, was all sweaty, you know, after having changed into um, dress blues, but uh, had a great ceremony. Um, I, I just remember some of the underclassmen in my unit who served as saber bearers that day, and it was just a lot of fun. Um, and I had family there from Europe. Uh, as I said, my, um, my dad's from Ireland, so I wanted to do it all in one day because they were coming all the way from over there. And, and I, so they wanted to see my graduation and, and the wedding. So I, I didn't want to make them pick and choose uh, one over the other. So, uh, but it was just a random day in terms of the weather patterns because, you know, we, we had the, I think it actually rained while we were inside the, the cadet chapel getting married. And then we came out, the rain had stopped. And then, um, like we went down to Trophy Point to take pictures and it, it, you know, the weather held off and then it started raining when we went, you know, inside the, the uh, officer club there for the reception. So even later in the day, we went further up the Hudson River um, to a big park and, it, you know, we took like the last photos of the day um, at this park in, in Hyde Park and then it started raining like right after that. <laughs> so it was, it, it was, it was an amazing day. Um, and um, because I had had back surgery at, at West Point um, as a first year, I had to stay on uh, to do some more uh, physical therapy. So, you know, I was at West Point when 9-11 happened. Uh, my wife was in New York City that day. And, um, you know, it, it, was, it was a very um, emotional time because, you know, 9-11 happened um, actually a month Prior to that, I, I lost my youngest brother in a car accident, and um, you know that for me was was very tough. Um, you know, I, I wondered how you know how could God take someone whom I love so much, and I you know I struggled with this for a long time, and I and I felt like man, I I almost wish that I could have gone instead of him, you know, and and then 9/11 happened, and it, it was you know I, I went down to New York City, and and I had to see it with my own eyes to really understand it. And then um, I, you know, I went eventually after I finished my, my physical therapy and, and rehab from the, the back surgery, then I went to officer basic course and really enjoyed myself uh, down in Fort Huachuca, Arizona with uh, some of our classmates and had a great time, you know, exploring the Southwest and hiking up 
into Mexico and <laughs> going down there Saturday nights and standing in, in like a, a mile-long line trying to get back into the U.S. Uh, th- those were good memories. What was it like um, being so close, feeling that pain, whether it's the physical pain of, of recovery from your back or the the personal pain of the loss of your brother and the impact of 9-11 to someone that grew up in New York State? Um, did going to Arizona, going to Huachuca, allow you the time and the distance to kind of help recover from that? Uh, I, I would say yes. Um, you know, it, it was uh, it was a time for healing. It was a time for resetting, uh, looking forward to the, the mission ahead, um, really savoring time with family and friends. And um, yeah, I, I felt like it, it was it was good for me to be somewhere else and to have a little more time to to try to process everything and I guess really, you know, lean on on trying to or try to reestablish a, a stronger personal relationship with God after I felt that um, so much had been lost. Now, when you left Huachuca and you reported to your first unit, what was that like? It, it was um, exciting. We were stationed, uh, my wife and I were stationed down at Fort uh, Stewart, Georgia. Um, she was not in the military, but um, she was actually going to try to get her master's degree in architecture down at Savannah College of Art and Design while we were down there. And, um, you know, we, we, we had friends down there from, from West Point whom we had known previously. And um, it, it was an exciting time in our lives. And, you know, we knew that this, the deployments were coming up. And, um, you know, shortly after getting to my unit, um, actually our, our battalion deployed to Kuwait uh, for a, a defense of Kuwait mission. Um, so typically there would be a battalion on a rotation assignment to Kuwait. And then our, our brigade went, and then our division, uh, we knew that, that something was about to go down. What was that like as a, as a young second lieutenant uh, in the role of MI going forward? Uh, great question. Um, you know, there, we were being filtered a lot of intel, um, you know, from echelons above division, and, and then just tr- also trying to study tactics, um, you know, that we thought the, the Iraqis might use. Um, and, uh, you know, a big focus at that time was obviously intel regarding the presence of WMD in Iraq. And uh, looking back on it now, it's, it's very interesting in retrospect to, to think about how, you know, all that intel uh, filtered down from, you know, echelons above division and, and how it really drove a lot of uh, the civilian leaders' decision-making process. Where, would, where did you see your ability to impact um, your unit the most? Um, where did you have the most ability to, to help out? Um, I really wanted to ensure that our company commanders had all the information that they needed to be successful. And, um, you know, we can talk more about this later, but when I moved over to 27 Infantry uh, and took over as the S2, um, that was a very rewarding time. And that was for OIF-3. And um, I, I was always trying to ensure you know, whether it was that first assignment or, or, you know, OIF-3, that our company commanders were empowered with the information that they needed to make the best choices uh, for their soldiers, and that they never felt like uh, we weren't trying to um, give them everything that we had. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to overload them with information because you have to conduct quality control on the intel that's being filtered down. And I guess I alluded to that before in, in some of the the higher level decision making um, regarding WMD. <laughs> Talk me through the train up 
and then ultimately um, the war. Yeah. Um, so we were um, we, we did a lot of train up leading up to the deployment. And again, at that time, no one really knew exactly what was going on, but a lot of us had a gut feeling that it was going to it was going to play out the way it did. And, um, you know, we were in Kuwait, we were doing a lot of training, living in the desert in, in tents. And um, at that point, my, my dad was uh, quite ill. And um, I remember sitting on top of a track vehicle um, and the chaplain and the battalion commander came up and, and said, Dave, we need to talk to you. And, um, you know, my dad had had surgery to, to remove cancer. Um, but then, he he got a blood clot or something during the surgery and that caused a heart attack. So my dad passed away. My mom was in a very bad uh, position, uh, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. And at that point, you know, we felt it was it was best to try to help her to heal. And and um, I got reassigned to a to another unit that was not going to be at the tip of the spear. And um, that was very tough for me. I, I wanted to be uh, with my unit, but. I felt very conflicted because, you know, this, this woman I, I love who brought me into the world, struggling immensely, I was very concerned about her. So um, I was more of in a support role for that rotation. Uh, we, we came back uh, after the deployment um, in 2003, and uh, my son was born, um, and then we did a train-up. We started to ramp back up for OIF-3, and I got assigned to 2-7 uh, Infantry, um, which was a great unit. Uh, it has a long history, and um, it was actually commanded by Andrew Jackson in the Battle of New Orleans. And um, apparently, um, that unit has served in, in more campaigns than any other infantry unit in American history. Um, and my, my battalion commander really, really believed in me. I, I was, you know, still relatively uh, inexperienced, uh, but we, we deployed to... Um, <clears throat> to crit area in Iraq for OIF-3, uh, and I was uh, S-2 at that time. In the interim, um, helping your wife, uh, raising your son, helping your mom, but not being forward, how did you set the conditions that when you went forward in OIF-3, you'd be ready to go? Yeah, so for uh, that period of time, I was um, in Kuwait um, doing some, some high-level intel stuff, uh, and, and I really just focused on the mission to try to support the, the forward units. Um, and it allowed for me to, to keep better in touch with, with my mom and, and to support her through that process of um, regaining her spiritual and, and emotional and mental health. And that, that was important. And um, I, I'm grateful that the chain of command supported that. And uh, I was ready to go. Uh, I mean, we came back after that and uh, we knew that we were going to return to Iraq. And uh, I was excited that as a family, we had reset, kind of moved through that, and uh, we were we came out of it on the other side, and it was, uh, it was an exciting time for me because I, I felt like I could difference in in OIF three, and um, <clears throat> you know we we were assigned to Tikrit, and it was a uh, it was an interesting part of Iraq. You know, I, I, we had a pretty large unit, uh, so we had a, a task force of of nine hundred men, give or take eight companies, which included support, HHC, and engineers, and then the, obviously the five maneuver companies. And uh, I just look back on those times and, and, you know, we were covering down on a pretty large area of operations, which included, you know, funny name places like Oja and Why Not and <laughs> Mukashifa and Al-Qadisiyah. Um, 
and that was our home for a year. And, uh, you know, I, I think Mike Gruber, Mike Gruber mentioned this in, in his interview, but I believe it, it was his company, you know, that, that got hit on our second day there by an IED. Um, unfortunately, we lost nine soldiers during the deployment across the task force. And, um, you know, as the two, I was, I, I took it personally when, when uh, our soldiers were injured or killed in action. And I, I did do my best um, to try to provide actionable intel. Um, you know, we, we were very proud, I think, uh, collectively of our time there. We, we oversaw three elections. Um, you know, we got there uh, towards the end of December uh, 2004, early 2005 timeframe. And, you know, we, <laughs> that, that first month uh, or first full month there in January, at the end of the month, there, there was an election and we we oversaw that, and you know, one of our our best moments was we we intercepted a car full of artillery rounds that was you know on its way to go blow up one of the polling sites. Um, but you know, car bombs were a, were a big thing uh, that that whole rotation, especially starting in the spring time frame through the summer. You know, every every three to four days for a few months, we we would have big car bomb attacks, and um, you know, my job was to find out who was who or which elements were conducting these attacks and, you know, responding to a, a car bomb attack that, you know, kills 40-something people in, in, a, in a marketplace. And in this case, uh, they were sometimes targeting Shiites in our area. We were in the Sunni Triangle. Um, but that was uh, something that I had never trained for. <laughs> um, and um, I had to learn on the fly. It was, um, it was chaotic and you would have these spasms of violence. So OIF-1, uh, the invasion, uh, U.S. forces come in, they secure uh, the capital, and we spread up all the way up to the north uh, in Missoula, Kirkuk, and Tikrit. Um, and we had a lull for a period. Um, but like you were talking about when you were in Tikrit, that was the, the seat of the Ba'ath Party. That's exact, that was uh, Saddam Hussein's hometown. And in OIF-1, when 4th ID captures him, um, there becomes a power vacuum after he's gone. And the hope that the Ba'ath Party had kind of melts away. And then AQI comes in and tries to leverage the, the Sunni populace and the Ba'ath Party to push the U.S. out. And you see a counter push from the Shiites as well. And that was OAF-2. Um, and then our major operations in OAF-2 with 1st Cavalry Division um, and 1st Armor Division getting extended uh, you see that attempt to to push that violence down, and then you're left with what you and I saw with OAF three, where these these spurts of violence where AQI is trying to um, start the internecine fight between the Sunnis and Shiites again, uh, but also to cause enough violence to push the United States out. Exactly, and you know, in our area of operations, they were mostly Sunni. Um, some attacks did target the the Shiites, but there was a lot of Sunni on Sunni violence, so it wasn't necessarily sectarian, but it was also tribe on tribe. And to your point, you know, Saddam was from the Nazari tribe, and, and that tribe was very oppressive of the other tribes in the area because they held all the power, obviously. And when Saddam was taken out, then the Jaburi tribe in our area, which was really suppressed by the Nazari tribe, stepped up, and they started to volunteer for you know, Iraqi police chief, Iraqi army commander, you know, political positions, etc. And, um, 
in some ways, it was almost like we were trying to police, you know, gang warfare on the, on the streets of, of Tikrit with these different tribes fighting for power and, and money and influence, but using car bombs <laughs> to, to attack each other. Um, so a lot of times, you know, the media would report, oh, there's another terrorist attack in, in Iraq. Um, when something would go down in our area of operations, but actually it was this tribal warfare that was playing out. And, you know, we, we were a very active unit uh, during the year. I mean, we, we, we ended up detaining over 300 people, and the battalion commander really leaned on me quite heavily uh, to provide accurate and credible intel to drive operations. He put a lot of trust in me. Uh, Colonel Wood, I, I think, you know, Mike Gruber mentioned his name in, in his interview as well, but he was, he was a great leader. And um, it, it was very frustrating, though, Joe, because, as you know, the truth was always buried several layers beneath the surface, right? So <clears throat> we had relieved a unit, and they had primarily used a couple intel sources. I still remember these guys' names and faces, but they used these two intel sources for 99% of their, their actionable intel. And... During my time there, I tried to work in, you know, redundant, credible intel reporting before, you know, deciding to conduct operations unless there was something very, very compelling. So we tried to have independent source reporting to validate what some of these two primary sources were providing us because we inherited those from, from the outgoing unit. Uh, it came to find out that one, one of them... Um, you know, was was definitely using us to carry out his own personal vendettas and to, and to push his agenda. Um, but to your point, very very chaotic. I, I remember one time um, hosting uh, some locals who said that they had credible intel on, you know, bad guys in the area. Very, very, very generic. And I, I said, you know, that's great. Uh, why don't you develop this situation a little more and come back when you have more specifics? They came back a few weeks later. They said, oh, you know, we know these bad guys are providing car bomb making materials to some of the local cells. And, and you know, that caught my attention because obviously uh, V-bids were a major threat. And we still didn't feel we, we had enough specifics. So I asked them to go back and refine it. And they came back a few weeks later. They said, oh, we saw some of these bad guys who were burying the car bomb making materials in, in their backyard. And I, I was like, all right, well, let's go. Bring us there. So, you know, one of our company commanders uh, deploys his unit there. They, they find the, the materials. They detain uh, the suspects at the site, and, and they bring them back. Um, and, um, and then about an hour later, at the gate to our fob, there's a big commotion, and some of the, the locals are, are, you know, being hysterical. And we go down to talk to them, and they say that, you know, this was all a setup. There was a conflict uh, between couple different families and, and these guys who gave you this intel, they had framed these, these suspects by putting these materials in their backyard, uh, RPGs and, and some, you know, materials that could be used for making car bombs. And uh, so then I, I detained the two sources that had given me the intel initially, and I'm talking to them, and one of them admits to having lied about this and, and having, uh, you know, framed these other people. And the other source never admitted to it. He just said, voila, which means God knows, which in other words means God knows I would never lie to you, um, infidel. <laughs> so that, that was 
just one example of how frustrating it was to to find the truth um and and it was always it was just there was so much randomness to to various events that happened like we were we were invited to a a wedding for example by one of the local sheikhs and and we get there and you know there there's only men at the wedding (laughs) and then a lot of the men are like hiding behind like these cars to the side like drinking um because that's not socially or morally acceptable there but a lot yet despite all that a lot of people do it and they're they look like you know they're they're high school kids at a a party somewhere because they're trying to drink secretly off to the side and then you know the women are all behind this wall and it was just it was awesome to be at a wedding but at the same time it was it was probably very different than you know when when you got married at at the cadet chapel (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah um it's always kind of frustrating um, because our role at the tactical level was basically to keep the violence down so the political and strategic processes could could advance and not to let the tactical derail the strategic. Um, But that chaos, that that constant risk of it, of the pot over uh, boiling over, it wasn't fulfilling because you you would have success and then you'd lose it. Exactly. And and I think we, we all experience that kind of that fog of war, uh, for lack of a better phrase, but just the some of the confusion and, and some of the, I guess, the, the conflicted feelings that, that you might experience in that type of environment. I, I remember one time in, in March 2005, um, you know, we went, we, we had some uh, credible intel about, you know, a local insurgent, and I would go out on the raids with, with the um, maneuver units and, and help to exploit the site and make the call as to whether we brought the suspects back in for, you know, further interrogation or, or and or detention. And um, we we were at this site and there was a, you know, there was this cute little like seven month old girl and we're in the house, you know, in the middle of the night. And I just did what I instinctively felt I should do as, as, as a dad, you know, with my own kids. I, I just, you know, shook her hand and she grabbed my finger and and she held on to it, and uh, that, that's a moment that I will always remember, um, you know, but nonetheless, um, we felt that the intel was credible enough, and, and we had to, you know, take her dad in uh, for further questioning, um, and, you know, that, that was, that was a, a pretty poignant uh, memory for me that I, that I carry from that time, because, and, and I, I think a lot of us may struggle with this sometimes in hindsight when we think about, okay, what if the roles were reversed? What if, you know, here in upstate New York where I live now, uh, near Lake George, <clears throat> we had Iraqis patrolling the streets, you know, in up-armored Humvees, what would I do as a patriot, you know? And um, I think that was something that I, I was processing, you know, after serving for quite a while, but I could never really articulate it or, or pinpoint that big question in my mind. And, and then I listened to a podcast recently and it was, it was by a, an army ranger and, and, you know, the title of the podcast was, were we the bad guys? And, um, we did so much good there, you know, in terms of investing in, in infrastructure and, and quality of life improvements for the people. But that's, that's a question that I was mulling over for a while. And, and I think a lot of it was subconsciously, to be honest with you, but you know, if, if the roles were reversed, what would we as patriots do here? And, it, you know, it's interesting to think about the terms that we use because 
when we were trying to establish um, you know, stability in the region, we would call anyone who was attacking us or Iraqi police or Iraqi army, we'd call them anti-Iraqi forces. But then if the, if the roles were reversed and, and the Iraqis were here in the U.S., um, and we were, we were fighting as patriots against them, would, would they call us anti-American forces? <laughs> Just a question. When you redeploy uh, after that experience in Iraq, um, you're getting close to the, the end of your oblig- obligation for service. Was that weighing on your mind when you, when you made the choice to stay in or to get out? Definitely. Um, when I got back from the second deployment, um, my son was almost two years old, and, and he, um, you know, he didn't know who I was because my wife had been living with family or you know, going to school to get her master's while I was gone, and, and he wasn't used to uh, seeing me or any other man around a lot, and um, you know it, it was tough because he would he would react emotionally, like if I walked in a room he would he would turn like beet red and, and just you know he he would just express you know anxiety and you know I, I think honestly um, you know it was painful to see him crying when when because he didn't know who I was but you know I was still kind of tightly wound up you know in that type of environment as you know where. You know, you're just working 16, 18-hour days and, and, and trying to bring everyone back home safely. And, and, and you leave this, this environment in which, you know, you really can't trust anyone. And, um, and there were some, some moments of brilliance there, too, and, and, and really beautiful moments like those elections. Or I remember one time there was a, an Iraqi police officer whose brother had died, you know, pulling security at a, a police station one day. And, and his brother showed up the next day, you know pulling security at that same location. So there was was a lot of, um, you know, positive experiences as well. Uh, But when you're coming from this environment and then you you come home and you're like, okay, I got to be a dad and and a husband, um, it's just such a stark transition. And, um, you know, I think the Army did its best to try to help us all kind of decompress and, and, you know, reintegrate into our family lives. But, you know, it, it did take some time. And, um, you know, as, as a father, when your son is rejecting you because he hasn't seen you in a long time, uh, you know, it's, it's a visceral response. Um, so at that point, um, to answer your question, you know, we were told, OK, you're going to be home for about nine months and then you're going back to Iraq for 18 months. And my wife and I, you know, we wanted to have a, a big family. I, I, I really took my role seriously as a father and, and as a husband. And I, I wanted to I wanted to raise a family as a as an engaged father who, who could be around more and so I made that decision and you know again I, I have so much respect for um, our classmates who've stayed in and so many of them have, have been you know outstanding parents through through all the time away and nothing but respect talk me through the transition um, from the military to the civilian world and like you talked about kind of some of the the lingering effects of um, that separation and that time away. Yeah, so I I really wanted to come home to upstate New York, and uh, you know after that last deployment, I wanted to I really just wanted to go watch a, a minor league baseball game, and you know on a summer day, and and you know enjoy the green grass and and a cold brew, and just come home and and also take care of my mom um, because obviously she was alone, um, and and so I came back to upstate New York and. One thing I did know is that I, I, I wanted to blaze my own trail. I, I, I wanted to exercise independence at that point. I had a, 
a burning entrepreneurial, um, you know, intention at that point. And I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I, I, I did know that I personally, I didn't want to go, you know, work uh, for a three-letter agency. I, I also didn't want to get recruited by Cameron Brooks or one of, one of those other big corporate recruiters. Um, I, I just wanted to kind of come back to upstate New York and, and find something that I was passionate about and, and start at the bottom and work my way up. So uh, I had a buddy of mine who, who designed and, and printed t-shirts. And I remember he was telling me how he, he could make like really good money selling t-shirts in New York City. So I decided to buy some of his shirts and, and I got a, a license actually to sell t-shirts as a, as a veteran, um, having like some preferred locations available to me to sell as a vendor. So I went down to uh, Soho <laughs> in this super hip location. I was selling these T-shirts for a weekend. And um, I remember, <clears throat> you know, one uh, uh, local who was selling T-shirts down there said, hey, uh, you know, just to give you a heads up, Dave, um, a lot of the guys are mad because you took like this prime location just because you're a veteran. And some of the guys said, like, you know, you might get stabbed or something. So. Uh, you know, I, I made a couple hundred bucks that weekend, and I was like, "That was fun. It was a good experience." But I'm not, I'm not going out like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> the money wasn't quite there, <laughs> Joe. It wasn't quite there. Um, and then I, I was, I had a buddy who was doing some uh, real estate investing in in the greater um, Capital District area in Albany, New York. And um, I decided to use some of our savings from our deployments. I invested in. Um, a couple of rental properties. This is 2006, 2007 timeframe. And again, I, I didn't have a mentor in business. I, I didn't have anyone telling me, hey, you, you may want to wait because, you know, you know, hindsight is 2020, but, you know, the market obviously crashed in 2008. So I, I bought kind of at the, the apex of the market. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I just knew that I was going to do something and make it happen. And, and um, you know, one just quick story I'll, I'll share is, I bought this this beautiful um, three-story brick building in, in Troy, New York, and you know they they just don't build them that way anymore. And it was it was just it was pretty impressive historical architecture, but it was in a rough neighborhood, and um, I got it for you know a little more than a hundred k. And um, I, I hired a, a you know a home inspector to check it out beforehand, and you know this was a really hot market. This is you know before the crash in '08 and. I think the inspector kind of glossed over, um, you know, some of the areas in the house. And, and lo and behold, I close on, on the property and I, I go up into the attic, uh, you know, because I, I brought a ladder with me this time. And I, I got up into the attic and looked around. This was a, you know, it had a flat roof. And so there was like a, basically a crawl space in the attic. And pigeons had gotten into the attic but couldn't leave through these small holes and you know, there, there was tons of like pigeon carcasses and, and pigeon feces uh, lining the whole attic, like basically four to five inches. Um, and you had these floor joists and I, I had to shovel out all the pigeon feces. It was pretty toxic stuff. And I filled up, uh, I think, 30 contractor bags by the time it was all said and done. Um, and that, that's just an example of, of me, you know, just trying to make it happen. You know, you got to you got to start somewhere and uh and you got to pay your dues and um you know and we we had you know some mishaps with the rental properties where we had to redo all the electrical in in one 
house and went into debt, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And my wife is urging me to just walk away from it all. But yeah, I, I wasn't going to give up that easily. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> my wife wanted to buy organic uh, groceries and, you know, send our kids to a particular school. And, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, those properties ended up being a great blessing. And, um, you know, I just sold the last of them last year. Um, so I, I bought high, but I, I did sell high. And, um, you know, for me, it, it was really rewarding. I mean, I had many tenants tell me, you know, you're, you're the best landlord uh, I ever had. And for me, it was a, it was a way to make a difference and, and to provide, you know, quality housing to people who uh, sometimes maybe uh, didn't have people uh, looking out, you know, for their best interests in, in other apartments they had rented. So that was an interesting experience. Um, and then, uh, then I finally kind of landed in, in the solar industry after that. So, so talk me through um, the entry into the solar industry and also what you learned through those rental properties that you applied to that when you got into the solar industry. What lessons? Yeah, great question. Um, and I, I think what I learned is, you know, just being in, in the rental business was that your, your customers have to come first and you have to invest in the success of your customers and then you can succeed. So for me, you know, if my, if my tenants uh, were happy in their living environment, then, you know, typically they were going to pay rent on time. And um, just to apply that to the solar industry, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to, to get into solar. Um, I, I just felt like after my experience in Iraq, uh, we should rely on, on that region of the world for as little as possible, particularly in terms of energy sourcing. And I, I, I was attracted to renewables because it was promoting energy independence um, here in the States, and, and it was renewable and um, sustainable. So I, there was a local company um, that was about 8, 10 miles down the road, and I, I knew I wanted to get a job there, and they didn't have any openings except for an installer. And you can imagine if, if you're a, you know, a business owner, because essentially in, in, you know, for a small solar contracting company, you're... you're, you're you're in the the uh, the buildings trades, right? So you're 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 doing construction work, and and someone you know who owns a business like that and receives a resume, you know, from someone who who served in Iraq and didn't have any construction nor business experience aside from <laughs> trying to sell T-shirts in Soho, um, probably would be a little taken aback, and um, and and that's that was the case for me. I. I I stopped by in person probably five times until I got the job because, again, they, they only had a position for an installer, and um, they were probably trying to figure out, number one, what I was going to bring to the table, and number two, if I, you know, if I knew what I was doing. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I got a job working at the bottom, you know, climbing up uh, these ladders, carrying solar panels on my back on the rooftops. And as you know, Joe, Iraq is hot, but man... Um, I got my, my butt whooped on some of those rooftops in summertime, uh, just the, the heat radiating off, off the roof. And it just really gave me a, a great respect for, for uh, men and women in the trades. And uh, I did that for a year. And again, you know, they were kind of looking at me like, oh, this guy is overqualified. He was a captain in the army. And now he's like taking this low level position. You know, they were, I think I was, I was grossing, you know, 18 bucks an hour. Uh, supporting a family, we were a single-income household, and uh, yeah, it was it was times were tight, but I I kind of worked my way up into sales and um, 
And that's really where I was able to draw from my lessons when I started my real estate business and really focused on empowering others to succeed and then understanding that it all comes back. And um, yeah, I I didn't sell anything though for about five months (laughs) when I started in sales. And I I know you, uh, I think you had just posted something on LinkedIn about your son doing sales, going door to door and what great training. But um, I'm so grateful to my, my employer there at that solar company because um, you know, they believed in me kind of like my battalion commander in Iraq. And um, I, I was just so used to trying to be detail oriented, uh, especially during our, our combat deployments. And, you know, because the devil's always in the details, but, but in sales, that's not always the case. It's, it's more about um, investing and, and listening, investing in and listening to others and, and understanding what their goals and their needs are. So uh, long story short, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I made it past those five months and I finally got my first sale. And then I, it was like, it was like a, a just an amazing high for me. I, I mean, it was like all the, these endorphins flooding my system when I got that first signed contract. And then, you know, I really fell in love with sales and, and I was able to parlay that job into another opportunity uh, working, you know, upstream in the solar industry for a manufacturer. Talk me through that transition of, of working for a relatively small regional uh, company uh, to a much larger global player. Yeah, great, great question. Um, it was a, <clears throat> it was a really interesting transition um, because I went from working for uh, a company with twenty employees when I started and probably you know forty to fifty when I left to um, you know LG. I, I think they they had uh, what was it a hundred. 20,000 employees or something to that effect. Um, you know, I think about, you know, the, our class at West Point and, and when we were all in an auditorium together, how, how immense that felt. And, and you're like just a shy under a thousand people. And so we, we had, it was a huge company and it was really a dream job, Joe. I, I was able to, you know, pay off some debt that we had incurred through a catastrophic event at a rental property. And, um, you know, I was given a corporate card and I, I was told to, to go to go sell. And, um, I, you know, I traveled all over the country and, and really built up their, their commercial and utility scale business for their, their solar division. But, you know, it wasn't always easy. I, I, I had to start at the bottom and, and uh, work my way up because, you know, I, I basically got to the job on the first day and we're staying at this hotel um, near the company headquarters. And, um you know, one of my supervisors tells me that that first night, um, he's like, uh, don't be a cowboy or I'm going to fire you like like the rest of, uh, of the guys who, who preceded you. And, and I was like, OK, <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I'm going to keep my uh, profile low, uh, keep my nose to the grindstone and and, uh, and just uh, do my job. And and that's what I did. And I ended up becoming good friends with that, that supervisor actually uh, down the road. So. Um, it, it was a great experience. I mean, we, we would bring some of our top customers actually to Korea to see the factory uh, where, where our panels were manufactured. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm still friends with a lot of those uh, customers today. And, um, you know, but I, I did five years there um, and uh, I, I knew it was time to go when I did. Why? Um, I, I'm not going to go into it in too much detail, but I, <clears throat> I felt that based upon some circumstances that were outside of my control and um, 
decisions that management was making alongside also tariffs that were being implemented in the industry um, that I, I could no longer um, serve my, my customers uh, like they deserve to, to be served. And um, I, I felt like it was time for me to move on. And, um, you know, I, at that point I had four kids and uh, it, was, it was a really good job. And, you know, I'm grateful to my wife for supporting me and, and believing in me. And I knew that there was a, a need for certain types of services in the solar industry. And I, and I just decided to take that leap of faith. And, and I, I cut sling load on, on the nice corporate job and, you know, just kind of decided to, to go into full uh, free fall mode. Well, just to, to summary, what you've done so far is um, when faced with a difficult task, um, you started leaning into your skill sets. So trying to get into West Point, you started leveraging your network engaging people one-on-one, building that relationship, and then earning that trust uh, to get opportunities. And then when you um, got to West Point, you, you learned to knock out tasks deliberately and to achieve that goal to go with your networking. And when you left the military, you were looking for the opportunity, I wanna do something on my own with a little bit less oversight, a little bit more control. And then you got into the rental and you got into selling T-shirts in Soho, um, <laughs> and then you worked for a small company, and you kind of built up another skill set. And it sounds like you, when you left LG, it was a very similar. You're leaving the big army, you're leaving big LG, and now you have more skill sets, more experience, and you're you're trying to take the next big jump. Is that kind of a good summary? Yeah, that that all sounds great, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like you planned it that way. Uh, well, but but you know, it's a, it's a work in progress, and um, you know, I, I, I'm a small shop now. We only have about 13 employees, but you know, I'm I'm just so grateful for uh, the people you know that that I've been able to recruit to join our team, and um, you know, and, and just I, I just look back on on my my various careers in the, these different spaces and and I've, I've just really been surrounded by great people and that, and that includes you know West Point and you know I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that so much of those values that, that were certainly inculcated in me as a, as a child by my parents uh, but also reinforced at West Point you know are, are really you know coming home now in my in my role as as leading my own business and you know it's it's, it's just coming full circle and you know, my my company values for my current business are uh, work ethic, integrity, which is aligning our words and our actions, customer service, and resilience. And you know, I again, I, I think when you listen to all these stories and um, being told by our classmates, you know, a lot of those same values really resonated for them in, in their careers. And um, so that's where I'm at now. I'm just you know building something. I, I really enjoy that process. It's it's not always easy. I mean, we we <laughs> we were about a year into this and landed a big contract, and we're really going to town. And and then um, you know a customer, our, our biggest customer couldn't pay us. You know, and um, <clears throat> that dragged on for a couple of years. And and at one point we were owed you know multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars, and we we almost went belly up. But you know we just kept going. You know the only the only way is through. So you just keep going. You do what you have to do every day. You wake up and, you know, you look around you at your teammates and, and you're just grateful for the way that they show up and, and you're grateful for your customers and, and you invest in your customers' successes. 
and sometimes, you know, even if a major customer isn't paying, um, you, you can find a way forward and, and it's, it's not easy, but you know, when you invest in other people's successes and that comes full circle and when you have customers and, and you make them feel like they are your only customer, then everyone succeeds. Great words. Um, as we wrap up, do you have any final comments to the class? Um, I think it goes without saying that, you know, we, we were all trained at West Point to, to do our mission. There was a lot of pressure to be high performing. I think it was maybe intimidating for a lot of us that came from small towns to show up and be around so many smart, capable, athletic people. Um, but I, I think to your point, Joe, there, there's a lot of different ways to define success. And so, for example, you know, one of our classmates, a friend of mine, Clayton Lynch, um, you know, he, he's been homeschooling for the past several years. And it's just been so inspiring to see how he shows up as a dad uh, for his kids and, you know, the, the legacy that he's going to leave for them based on all that time and energy and love that he's invested. So, you know, what I would say to our, our classmates is, like, we, we all got to find um, what we're passionate about and what we love. And, you know, when you do what you love, you're going to make a dent in the universe. And, and um, again, the way I would define success is equate it to legacy and investing in the success of others and making them feel like they're your only customer, and it all come full circle in the end. So to our classmates, I would just say, define the way that you want to leave your legacy, and that's going to be your, your definition of success. And be easy on yourselves, because there's, there's so many ways to, to leave a positive legacy, and, and we can't let others define that for ourselves. Thank you very much, Dave. That's, uh, that's pretty powerful stuff. Um, thank you for sharing your story today. Thank you, Joe, for your time. Be well. Till duty is done. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please share with your friends and follow the podcast. We want these stories to be shared with as many people as possible.